qualities like faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And when these qualities are on display in our lives, we can be the fruitful and effective disciples, the faithful witnesses that Peter challenges us to be. And Peter's reminding his audience of these truths as he prepares to die. He wants to make sure that the next generation of believers will carry on the faith in all its fullness when he's gone. But on top of that, as we discussed last week, these reminders are even more necessary because the disciples are hearing some mixed messages. False teachers are questioning the teachings that Peter has handed down to them. And when you're hearing lies, it's that much more important to be reminded of the truth. So Peter makes it clear that these false teachers are to be identified and avoided. That way the disciples won't fall prey to their destructive heresies. Peter argues that those false teachers are really no different than the false prophets of the Old Testament. Those people who claimed to be sent from God, but really weren't. Those people who claimed their message was from God, but it really wasn't. Those false prophets invited God's judgment down upon themselves. And Peter says these false teachers are following in their footsteps. Now, of course, that all sounds a bit scary. Talk of judgment and destruction. And Peter makes it clear that the stakes really are that high. And the danger that these false teachers pose is real. But Peter encourages us and these disciples not to be overwhelmed with fear. They shouldn't be overly alarmed. Why not? Because just as sure as God will judge the false teachers, God will save his faithful witnesses. He's done it before and he'll do it again. But as we close the letter today, Peter's not quite done with the false teachers yet. He gives us more insight into what these people were actually teaching, the content of their message. And last week, Peter encouraged the believers by looking to examples of God's judgment and deliverance in the past. But today, Peter points their eyes to God's judgment and God's deliverance in the future. He makes it clear that a day is coming that the false teachers will dread, but the believers will celebrate. And the promise of this future event should shape believers' actions today. So open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you need one. But before we do any reading... Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. I pray that we would come to your word humbly. We want your word to maybe say lots of different things. We like parts of your word more than others. But I pray that you would give us the humility to receive what it is that you have to say today. Father, I pray that we would... Live out what your word has to say today, even when it makes us stick out from the society around us. I pray that you'd give us courage, that you'd give us strength, that you'd give us hope, 
as we hold true to the doctrines we talk about this morning. I pray for us this week, every single one of us in this room, as I'm sure many of us will travel, many of us will see friends and family, many of us will grieve loved ones who are missing their first Thanksgiving. Father, watch over all of us in the days ahead. And I pray that we would shine as lights for your son Jesus in all the places that we go, all the get-togethers, all the things that we do in the holidays. I pray that we would represent you well. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy, expressed no better than through the cross of Christ. We love you. We ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, as far back as you look, humans have always loved a good end-of-the-world theory. We're fascinated with different ideas about what's going to happen in the future. It's almost like we're wired to expect some dramatic conclusion to human existence as we know it. We see it in countless movies. So many of them revolve around a hero trying to prevent a villain from ending the world. Or the person who miraculously survives the end of the world trying to start life over. The TV show Doomsday Preppers became a massive hit a few years ago. And ever since, selling food and water and other supplies to those prepping for the end of the world is now a very lucrative business. Many people were in a frenzy right around December 21st, 2012. That was supposed to be the end of the world, or so people thought, according to the Mayan calendar. Before that, preacher Harold Camping said the world would end on May 21st, 2011. Based on his calculations straight from the Bible, of course. And before that, there was the panic of Y2K, when we all thought the world would shut down when we went from 1999 to 2000. Unless you think all this talk about the end of the world is simply some religious phenomenon, there's the famous doomsday clock put together by the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists in 1947. This group of scientists adjusts the clock based on how close they think the end of the world could be, a.k.a. midnight. In 1991, it was set at 17 minutes to midnight. Right now, it's at two and a half minutes to midnight, the second closest it's ever been. Spooky, right? Well, in our passage today, Peter talks about the end of the world as we know it. But believe it or not, Peter feels fine. So open up to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. We begin reading there. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. And both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, 
But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter tells us two important things. As we start the passage this morning, number one, he tells us that scoffers will come and he's referring back to the false teachers, of course, the same ones that he attacked last week. Paul warned believers of the exact same thing in his letters. He told them that false teachers would come. They would try to lead you away from the truth and into lies. They'll do this by appealing to your sinful desires You're to avoid them at all costs, and they will eventually be thwarted by God. Peter's not saying anything new here. Paul says the same thing. But what specific sinful desires will the false teachers follow? What sinful desires will they appeal to to try to drag you down with them? Well, if you remember last week, Peter stressed two specific qualities of these false teachers. Sensuality and greed. He said they'll try to drag you away from Christ using two very powerful temptations, two often effective temptations, sex and money. Now, this false teaching that Peter's attacking, that the false teachers are offering, isn't based on some revolutionary new understanding of Jesus. They don't have some never-before-seen record of Jesus' life that changes everything. They simply want to pursue sin. And they want you to pursue sin with them. But then on top of appealing to sinful desires, the false teachers have another strategy to lead people astray. And this one's a little more unique. Their strategy is to cast doubt On the future return of Christ. The false teachers suggest that there isn't really going to be a day of judgment. Now, of course, this directly contradicts the very clear words of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 36, Jesus says this. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, But the father only for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Jesus makes it clear that he will return. And in the verses following that, Jesus compares the person who's not prepared for his return to a servant whose master leaves him in charge while he's gone on a trip. And that servant only gets caught doing wrong when the master suddenly returns. He compares the person who's not prepared for the day of judgment to five virgins who aren't ready to celebrate a wedding and thus don't get invited to the reception. Jesus makes it very clear that he will come back and it will be a day of judgment and that we are to be ready. But Paul says the same thing. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse one. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, sounds very similar to Jesus there. Concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Paul and Peter both talk about people going on with life as always. Life as normal, only to be surprised at the day of judgment. Peter says that, the false teachers claim that everything's going on like it always has ever since the fathers fell asleep. Jesus says that just like in the days of Noah, people are marrying and being given in marriage and drinking and eating like nothing is upon them. Paul says that people are claiming there's peace and security. Nothing's going to happen. We're starting to see some very similar themes in all three of these passages. Peter and Paul both use the word thief, coming like a thief in the night to describe the return of Christ. They didn't make this stuff up. They got it directly from the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. So again, part of the false teacher's strategy to lead us astray is to suggest that Jesus isn't really going to return. The day of judgment isn't really going to happen. I mean, come on. If he was really going to come back, wouldn't he have done it by now? And think about it. If some people bought that argument 2,000 years ago, 30, 40, 50, 60 years after Jesus' resurrection, if people were already starting to wonder back then, that argument can also be tempting today. So if Christ isn't coming back, if there is no such thing as a day of judgment for sin, when the works done on the earth will be exposed, well, if you believe that, it's not difficult to follow the false teacher's logic from there. If there's no judgment for sin, 
Why not just go crazy? Pursue whatever sensuality you want. Let your greed rule over you. If this life really is all we have to worry about, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And you know what? Their logic adds up. If Christ isn't going to return, if there's no day when we'll have to answer to God for what we've done, then what have we got to lose? But there's one big problem, of course. Even though their logic makes sense, the false teachers are wrong. Christ will return. There will be a day of judgment. God has a pretty good track record of fulfilling his promises. In fact, a perfect track record. And when that day comes, Peter says it will be too late for the false teachers and their followers. Now, have you ever wondered why Christ hasn't returned yet? Deep down, do you ever worry that the false teachers might actually be on to something? I mean, if he hasn't returned yet, 2,000 years after Peter wrote this letter, is he ever going to return? This thought might be a source of doubt and even a source of discouragement for you. But thankfully, Peter gives us some clarity, and he gives us some reassurance that should ease our concerns and answer some of our questions. Specifically in verses 8 through 10 of First Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, rather, Peter makes it clear that God, number one, is not on a timeline. Now, it's hard to wrap your mind around it, but... Peter's arguing that God simply isn't subject to the limits of time and space in the same ways that we are. He's above time. So God didn't accidentally fall asleep and miss the deadline for Christ's return. God didn't accidentally forget about the day of judgment. And despite all the preachers who have tried to predict when Jesus would come back, Scripture makes it very clear that none of us knows when it will be. And then on top of that, Peter argues that this delay of sorts isn't a mistake on God's part. In fact, this delay can even be seen as an act of kindness on God's part. Peter says that by patiently waiting for the day of judgment, God is graciously allowing more sinners to come to repentance and come to faith. God won't wait around forever. We see that in the pages of Scripture. But any waiting on his part is an act of mercy and grace. Now, many of you know that my grandfather passed away in February of this past year. And he was diagnosed with cancer in spring of 2014 and didn't die until this February. And he lived a lot longer than any of us, including the doctors, expected him to live. And sometimes we wondered why he lived so much longer than he seemingly should have. Now, the truth is, I don't know for sure. None of us does. But I like to think that the idea of this passage may be why. Maybe, just maybe, God was giving my grandfather a little bit more time than he deserved to repent and come to faith. I have no idea if he ever did or not, 
None of our family really does. We don't know where he stood with Christ when he died. But I like to think that those extra two years or so that my grandfather had, maybe that was an act of grace on God's part. That he was giving him just a little bit more time to repent. A little bit more time to believe. But, back to our passage. Peter rejects the false teacher's denial of Christ's return. He affirms that the day of judgment is coming when you least expect it, just like Jesus said it would. And only a fool would view the uncertain timing of this future judgment as a license for sin right now. The person who does that is just as willfully ignorant as the people of Noah's day, eating and drinking and marrying, even though a flood was bearing down upon them. That person is just as foolish as the unprepared homeowner who could have prevented the thief from robbing him, but fell asleep instead. That person is just as dense as the servant who got caught red-handed by the boss. That person is just as silly as the virgins who missed the wedding because they weren't prepared. But if we do believe that Christ will return, if we do believe that a day of judgment will come, then what should we do as we wait? Do we just sit around and go about life however we see fit? Eating and drinking and marrying? Should we buy a megaphone and head down to Lucas Oil Stadium and start screaming that the end is nigh? Should we fireproof our houses? Because Peter talked about fire. Well, not exactly. I think Peter gives us some different guidance to consider. We see it starting in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So as we wait for the return of Christ, Peter says we are to pursue holiness and pursue godliness. In other words, the future return of Christ should shape how we live today. If you look back to Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples, be ready, be ready, be ready. And I pray that we too would be ready. Now again, none of us knows the time or date of Christ's return. Will it be tomorrow? I don't know. Could it be tomorrow? Sure. I pray that would encourage us to be ready, to not fall asleep. I pray that Christ would find us pursuing holiness and pursuing godliness when he returns. And one thing that's important to note, anytime we hear the phrase day of judgment, it can sound scary. Peter's talking about destruction and judgment and fire. That can all sound intimidating. And you know, to be totally honest, that day should sound scary to the false teachers that Peter's addressing. 
It should sound scary to those who reject Christ. It should sound scary to those living for nothing but sinful desires. But for God's people, believers in Christ, the return of Jesus is anything but scary. Peter even says that we are called to hasten the coming of the Lord. Be anxious for it. Look forward to it. For us, it's a day of joy and a day of celebration. It's the day of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the day when God's kingdom is finally seen on earth as it is in heaven in all of its glory. For us, the day of judgment isn't something to dread. Isn't something to fear. It's like a long-awaited wedding or a victory parade. We see it in passages like Psalm 96 and 98 where the hills and the rivers and the oceans sing with joy at the coming of God's judgment. In Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, The one who conquers will look forward to this day. In Revelation 21 and 22, we see that this is the day when tears are wiped away from eyes. The dead in Christ rise from their graves to eternal life. The day when Satan and sin and death are defeated once and for all. So yes, for some, the day of judgment sounds scary. For many, it will be. But not for us. Not for believers in Christ. So contrary to what the false teachers say, the return of Christ is very real. Of course, that doesn't mean that we should be obnoxious about it. And it's silly to try and calculate when that day might come. It might sell you a few books, but your prediction's probably not going to be right. But we certainly shouldn't deny the return of Christ. Because it will happen. And knowing that truth should shape how we live today. So be ready. Don't fall asleep. Pursue godliness and holiness as you wait. Don't fall into the error of the false teachers that is still alive and well today. The error of so much of our world. There will come a day when we must stand before God and give account. Many people in our day and age find this to be a primitive, outdated, silly, maybe even pathetic superstition. We're told that we should live in the moment, pursue the fleeting pleasures this life has to offer before we run out of time. You only live once, right? Well, don't buy into it. Even though those sinful desires may look, sound, and feel good right now, don't be so short-sighted. Even though the idea that there's no day of judgment, that we will never have to answer to God, that may sound liberating, it really just enslaves you to sin. So instead, lay up treasures in heaven. Pursue the eternal joys of salvation. The reward for those who conquer, the new heavens and the new earth, the presence of God the Father himself, will be more than worth the wait. So may we be faithful witnesses of Christ now as we look forward to our reward in the future when Christ returns. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that you've given us to worship you. Thank you that the story's not over yet. That your son was born and lived and died and rose and ascended. And we celebrate those things. We give you glory for all those things. But there are still things left to do. Your son hasn't returned yet. And even though we might get impatient, even though we might even have seeds of doubt, wondering if it really ever will happen, I pray that you would give us faith, you'd give us joy, you'd give us confidence that you fulfilled your promises in the past and you will fulfill this one too in the timing that you see fit. And Father, in the meantime, as we wait, I pray that we would be faithful witnesses. I pray that we would pursue godliness and holiness. I pray that people would come to faith, come to repentance by your grace, simply through seeing our words and seeing our deeds. Father, again, we thank you that your son will return, and we look forward to that day. Give us patience, give us joy. Father, help us be ready and help us not fall asleep as we look forward to that day. May we be numbered among those who conquer to the very end. And may we see the new heavens and the new earth. May we see your presence in all of its fullness. I pray that we would come to that time of our reward. Bless us and keep us and find us faithful. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh my soul, now worship Your holy name. Oh, the sun comes up. It's a new 
We certainly shouldn't deny the return of Christ, but that also doesn't mean we have to be obnoxious about it. So we don't need to go down to Lucas Oil Stadium and scream in people's faces that the end of days has come, because they'll probably say, yeah, we know, look at our record. (laughs) There's your joke for the day. However, in all seriousness, on the one hand, we see people to one extreme who are very obnoxious about these promises in Scripture about Christ's return and often do more harm than good through the ministry they attempt, maybe with the best intentions, of course. That's one extreme, but then often Christians like us swing to the opposite extreme, that we don't want to say anything about the return of Christ or the day of judgment because we don't want people to think we're weird. We don't want people to think that we're like that guy with the megaphone. But again, I pray that we would find that healthy balance. Where on the one hand, we don't have to be obnoxious about the return of Christ, but on the other hand, we certainly shouldn't deny it. And in fact, we have a responsibility to share it with those who will listen. So as we leave here, I pray that we would go out into this world knowing that there is a future day of judgment. Knowing that people should hear the truth of that as we believe as followers of Christ. But I also pray that we would not look at the day of judgment with fear with intimidation, being overwhelmed or scared, but that we can look at the day of judgment as a celebration, a day when the new heavens and the new earth will come, and that through the body and blood of Christ, we have the joy of inheriting that new heaven and new earth and being in the presence of God. So this shouldn't scare us. This should give us joy, and this should give us confidence as we go to our schools, our workplaces, our homes, all the places that God sends us. So, as we close today, we will pray one final time. We certainly hope you have a safe and happy Thanksgiving. Be safe as you travel, wherever you might be going, and we hope you'll join us next week. So let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your kindness, your grace. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the faithful witnesses you call us to be as we wait for your son's return. I pray that we would stay awake, that we would be ready, and I pray that we would look to that day with joy. Father, be with us as we go out into our world as your representatives. I pray that we would represent you well, and we thank you that even when we fall short, even when we fail, you are kind and merciful and good to us. We thank you for Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.